0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to you all. This is Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, The Andrew Lawton Show, Here on True North on this Monday, October 30th, but we are going global today. I am normally coming to you from London. Uh, Today, I'm also coming to you from London, albeit uh, very much a different London, a bit more of a vibrant one. No offense to my hometown, uh, but I'm coming to you live from London, England, where I have uh, just had the great privilege of going through the first day of the first ever ARC Forum. Now, what is the ARC Forum, you ask? Well, what a wonderful question. I happened to, I banged my microphone. I'm sorry, I, like, I'm doing a weird on the road setup here. But the ARC Forum is the conference of the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, which is a new organization helmed by Baroness Stroud and uh, more notably championed by Jordan Peterson. I just say that because I know he's been a a big booster of this idea of a global organization where the big thinkers and leaders of the era come together and convene about their ideas for the future. Now, hang on, don't tune out just yet. I'm not talking about Davos. I'm not talking about the World Economic Forum, although I will talk about some of the contrast between it and Arc in a few moments. This is very new, and I had the great privilege of being invited and i wanted to come and check it out i'm actually at this conference as an attendee but i'm always kind of like have microphone will travel so i've been making a point of interviewing a number of the other conference goers while i've been here and i will continue to do so over the course of the week but why i wanted to talk about this is because we've often wondered why groups like world economic forum and the un to some extent although it's a bit different and other institutions like these are so powerful. And oftentimes it's because they've actually put in the effort to make these places the rooms where decisions are made. And that's, I would argue, Canadians and people in the Netherlands and the UK and Americans and Australians that ultimately have to deal with the consequences of of these because the uh, the rooms where decisions are made are happening far away from democratic oversight. So it isn't quite like that. So to give you a bit of a sense of what the ARK Forum is all about. Let's go to its champion, Jordan Peterson.
2: Let's also be clear. The future is not just happening. The future is built by us, by a powerful community as you here in this room
1: oh we cut off Klaus Schwab there the uh uh, that was the clip though no that was that didn't look like Jordan Peterson his accent has uh, come along a little bit no 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 different conference different forum whatsoever Uh, let's go instead to Baroness Stroud Philippa Stroud kicking off the inaugural ARC forum
2: we believe there is a better story and it is one of optimism that sees a future of abundance and opportunity, not scarcity and decline. So ladies and gentlemen, as we open this inaugural ARC conference, we invite you to go on the journey from darkness, fragmentation, division, polarization and intolerance to a better story, one that is rooted in the infinite value of every human being, built on the freedoms of freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and woven together with kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control by a responsible people. And as I'm sure we will hear Jordan Peterson say shortly, welcome aboard the Ark
1: ah you don't often hear the davos folks talk about individualism and freedom of conscience freedom of religion freedom of speech those are concepts that in fact are viewed as the antithesis of the globalist utopia that is the World Economic Forum. But all of that is to say that there is a a bit of a different brand of conference taking place here. Now, I I know I'm coming across as a bit of an evangelist, and and part of that is because I think that conservatives have needed something like this. And I, I use the broadest possible interpretation of the word conservative here. I'm talking about people who are more social conservative in their orientation, people who are libertarians, traditional Tories. People who are also more of the revolutionary populist conservative. All of them have had a, a bit of a role to play here, and I, I know there was a bit of skepticism in the crowd when Kevin McCarthy, who up until like five minutes ago was the U.S. House Speaker, was one of the speakers at the Arc Forum, and people were looking around saying, uh, "Well, is you know, is he? Is this the conference we signed up for?" And To be fair, you also have people like Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro who are here. You have Jordan Peterson championing it. You have people that are coming from all walks of life, 1,500 delegates, 72 different countries, people in media, academia, politics. And government, Leslie Lewis, is an advisor. And interestingly enough, I suspect the left will be a lot less tolerant of Leslie Lewis having a role with ARC than it will of uh, Christian Freeland having a role with the World Economic Forum. And, And to all of the critics of this, I say absolutely criticize the ideas. This is a forum for ideas. But at the core of it, and this is, I think, the most important part, the ideas seem to be rooted in the value of the individual. And this is not a place where decisions are being made by elites that you will all have to deal with downstream. And, you know, interestingly, I I just about, I don't know, 40 minutes ago or so, I I was speaking with Jordan Peterson very briefly. And I had said, Jordan, I'm about to go on air. Uh, And he says hello, by the way. He's a, a big supporter of True North. I said, Jordan, I'm about to go on air. What would you tell people is the distinction or the contrast between ARC and WEF? And in true Jordan Peterson-like fashion, he gave a very eloquent and uh, biblical and historical answer that I I can't possibly paraphrase, and the room was far too loud for me to record it, but he effectively said, we are wanting to give people freedom to to rise up themselves, to raise their communities, to elevate themselves, and as a result, elevate society. We're not looking to just give people what they want or what we think they want. And that was so critical. And you know, look, I've covered the World Economic Forum on two occasions now. And both times, the presentations you hear from the speakers are almost all about them building the world they want and you having to make it happen. Here, we are being empowered as attendees. And I I say that because I I actually felt, I don't feel empowerment often, but I felt a, a wee bit of empowerment this morning. Maybe it was something in the punch, but we are being empowered to help build the world that we want for ourselves. And as a result, lift people up. And that is, I think the biggest distinction between the elites versus the everyman. I would argue generally between the left and the right. And that was one of the conversations I was having with people here. Uh, you may know Ava Vlardingerbrook, who has been a, an absolute firebrand of a commentator from the Netherlands. I first met her because she was a regular guest on my old friend Mark Stein's show, and I was actually hanging out aboard the Mark Stein cruise with her a few months back. And I was chatting with Ava a little bit about this very trend we're seeing right now, towards globalism and what uh, an organization like Art can do to kind of resist that. Take a look. One of the things you've been known for, I think, uh, contextualizing and criticizing it, is the rise of globalism. And I- I'm wondering where you think this comes from. What's the root of this?
3: Where globalism comes from? Well, I mean, ultimately, people like power, uh, especially people in power, and they like to extend their power beyond what they already have. And globalism, well, what what's better than to have control over the entire world, you know? If you can control one country, that's nice. But uh, I think to people who have nefarious intentions, the more power, the better. Um, and then why not on a global scale, right? So I think in some, to a certain degree, it's a natural thing in the human mind to want to expand power. And uh, sadly, I think that there are a lot of people right now who who see opportunities there and who package that really nicely and with good-sounding intentions. Um, But when we look at how that plays out in reality, it can never really be good.
1: One of the biggest and I'd say most disheartening trends is that people who are elected as anti-globalists or as nationalists oftentimes end up disappointing. I mean, you have a number of Conservative governments in the UK, in the Netherlands, Italy has been a particular letdown, I know for you personally. And How do we fight that? Because if you can't even really elect someone in a country that's going to fight against it, we truly are powerless.
3: Yeah, I've been somewhat, um, to throw in a nice inter- internet term there, somewhat black on the political system in general. I mean, yes, Maloney, for example, being a recent uh, case of someone who I've heard personally go on stage and talk about the, the danger of globalism and really vehemently attack the globalists. And now she's in power. And the one thing that she promised, which was a naval blockade, she didn't do. And Lampedusa is being swarmed with migrants at a, a record number uh, last months so it's like i i think probably not putting too much solace and or hope in people who have personal interest um within the political realm is a good idea because somebody who will yeah like i said you know if you get in power you probably want to keep it and um catering to the globalists is a way to keep it right now sadly so maybe the 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 resistance has to be outside of the system rather than in it
1: There's a World Economic Forum class, obviously. People that go to the same parties. They all take each other's ideas. They all take inspiration from each other. Here we're at a forum that on paper is is arguably similar. It's a global collection of leaders in various fields, but it's very different. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about why that is, and and I guess more importantly, why you're here.
3: Great, well, so I'm here, um, obviously, when, when Jordan Peterson announced that he was starting a counter-movement basically to the World Economic Forum, it immediately sparked my interest because although I'm not a fan necessarily of centralized organizations, the essence of this is is not that. It's actually to bring together people who look at power in a more decentralized, more nationalist way, uh, bring them together to fight, again, a global agenda, right? So it's, it's in essence the opposite idea of the World Economic Forum, even though we do have to conspire together you know in order to exchange ideas and uh and i really like that for because of the fact that it's it's active you know we're, we're doing something and there's a lot of talk on the conservative side but this is something where people can actually join and 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 exchange ideas and take action and hopefully spread the word um, beyond social media, so I, I really like it for that reason. The focus, obviously, on responsible citizenship is a, a very different idea than what the World Economic Forum predicates. Uh, they, for them, all of the political ideology that they're based on, everything left-wing, anyway, anything neo-Marxist, is always it's always outside of yourself, right? It's always the system that is oppressive. It's a racism or the patriarchy or. Uh, anything climate you know it's always anything that is outside of your own control and I think what Peterson opened with today saying no you you have agency over your own life and that's why you need to get started is a really good message and one that we desperately need so I'm curious to see how this will develop and uh, what will come from you know a meeting like this because it can't just be talking we need to be wary of that but I really really like the idea
1: And just on citizenship, I mean, one of the more dangerous trends in recent years has been this idea of a quote-unquote global citizen, which I I think is an incredibly facile uh, thing to say exists. Uh, You can't have citizens without nations, and, and that's one thing I hope comes up here, because that's really been... I'd say the cornerstone of a lot of the problems we've seen is the erosion of of nations and the erosions of states. Yes.
3: I mean, a citizen of the world is a a contradiction in terms. I would say you can't be a citizen of the world, you are a citizen of a particular country. And with that, you know, we're talking about citizenship being limited to your nation state, but also democracy in and of itself is inherent to the idea of a nation state. You can't have democracy on a global level. It doesn't function. So I think that that's important for people to, to, to realize, You know, even though the globalist ideas, the, the ones that we hear, for example, in the agenda 2030, they sound very good, but the only way that that can happen is if, is, if there is a, an active redistribution of your rights, your goods, and, um, I mean, in general, all of your basic liberties, really. You can't have a democracy on a global level. It doesn't work that way. And I think that that's something that people don't, don't really realize when they, they listen to the, the nice free text and the pretty words. So, yeah, I hope, I hope we'll hear more of that here. But uh, we've only just gotten started, so I'm very hopeful
1: that was ava Vlardingerbrook, very strong voice on globalism i intended to talk to her about digital id that's been a big thing for her but the conversation just sort of meandered in uh different directions that were far more pertinent to the topic and conference at hand so i have no regrets about that but i do think i mean when we talk about the idea of ideas which is really what is at the core of a, a forum like this I I go back to what I said about the World Economic Forum, which is the contrast. I mean, ARC really, I think, was created uh, as a counter force to WEF, whether intentionally or unintentionally, explicitly or implicitly. That's how I see it, and that's how it's been explained to me by people who support this. And I I said in the title of the show, and I'll say again, this is the anti-WEF. It is a, a group that could have the same force but for good and for the individual and I should say there are not a huge number of politicians here and I'm not aware of there being any heads of state or heads of government I I may be wrong I was like, there's, there's like a speaker's list here. And I, I was looking through and uh, there are a few former heads of government. Uh, the only current MP from Canada is uh, Leslie Lewis, as I mentioned. But even though, suppose that the Conservatives form government, Leslie Lewis, is in cabinet, let's say, I don't think she would be coming. And I, I would certainly reject it if she were coming here because she wanted to come up with policy. And I almost think it's more powerful that politicians are not a central as they are in Davos, which has really become this very large cash for access fundraiser where you've got the big money of corporations, the big influence of NGOs, the big power of politicians, and they all get together in a back room and come out with some, you know, agreement or proclamation that they're going to bring back to their respective countries. And if you're a voter in that country wondering how that thing came to be, well, the joke's on you because you don't actually get to vote for it or against it. And you don't even really get to vote out the people responsible for it, Klaus Schwab Bob does not appear on your ballot. And it it is interesting because when you look through the speakers, uh, I was sitting earlier on next to Bruce Party, who's a former law professor at Queen's University. Now he's the head of Rights Probe. And if you've seen Bruce's interview on my show, you'll know he has never once in his life been accused of optimism. So he is like the most cynical, pessimistic person possible. And on my other side was David Haskell, who's a a dissident professor at Laurier University, very optimistic despite the climate. And beside him was B. Bjorn Lomberg, the uh, great activist on uh, environmentalism and climate change, although from a far more common sense perspective. So Bjorn's not part of the story. I just had to name drop him because he was at my table. But I had David Haskell like the angel on one shoulder, Bruce Party, the devil on the other in terms of disposition. And, you know, it was really interesting because I was chatting with Bruce and he was like, oh, well, I don't know about this speaker. I don't know about this speaker. And it it got me thinking, and I'll have a bit more of a thorough report when I've seen a bit more of this. The problem with this organization is that you have a lot of stakeholders in it. You've got, you know, big money people, you've got activists, you've got conservative politicians from countries that have very different political traditions. Like you take a UK Tory MP and put them next to a Republican from the United States, and a lot of them are probably going to feel like they are on different sides of the aisle. So the bigger it becomes, the more different things you have to accommodate. And the problem with that is that you can oftentimes move towards banality at best because you're trying not to alienate anyone, uh, or at worst, you move in another direction politically entirely. And it was interesting, because I was thinking about this this morning, and there's a a gentleman by the name of John O'Sullivan, who's a a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, and the author of a number of tremendous books, my favorite of which is The President, The Pope, and The Prime Minister. And John O'Sullivan coined this phrase that I've used on the show in the past, called O'Sullivan's First Law. And O'Sullivan's first law, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, is that any organization that's not explicitly right-wing will over time become explicitly left-wing. And the thrust behind that is that the cultural forces trend leftward. So unless you're really, really holding on tight and anchoring yourself, you're going to move left with the culture. And I was thinking about that in the context of the World Economic Forum. And that was an organization that I don't think was ever explicitly right-wing. And then I put it into the context of Arc and say, okay, this is a more conservative-oriented organization Will it, as it grows, naturally drift left? What would O'Sullivan's first law say about this? And as I was thinking about this internally, I look up and there's John O'Sullivan uh, who is like uh, grabbing a coffee at the cafe there. So I I went up and, and chatted with John and decided we would just do this on camera instead. So this was my chat with John O'Sullivan about whether an organization like this can keep its footing and avoid being like the rest of these globalist Disneyland's. What advice would you give to an organization like this, that's established, that has a number of competing interests, people from different geographic backgrounds and also different industrial backgrounds?
2: Well, I would uh, simply warn them, of course, that there are people who, in any organization, um, who uh, who are have other aims than those of the organization itself. So there'll be some people who simply want to become famous rise in the world, get a good title. And um, they generally will side against the highly principled people because they won't want to take risks. So you watch out for them. Uh, And I think you will find people who interpret the mission of the organization genuinely interpret it differently. Uh, And again, you have to argue with them. Uh, And maybe when you argue with them, it leads inevitably to some kind of a split Um, So, the main point is to keep the um, initial aims of the organization clearly in the mind of everybody, and and defending those aims clearly whenever the opportunity or the necessity arises.
1: To go back to your time working with uh, Baroness Thatcher in that era of conservatism, how relevant is that brand of politics today still to the challenges we face?
2: well, politics uh, changes, but it never changes completely. Uh, so, um, obviously, there are periods when uh, a party feels it's doing well; um, it can, it has support, it can push its ideas clearly. And other times, when it feels that it, it somehow or other, um, it, the 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 the, the uh, mandate of heaven has been re- removed from it, and it's that's the most important moment really, because. Um, uh, anybody who wants to make an advance in politics quickly thinks that they can do so by becoming a major figure in an organization that is on rock bottom. And they're generally right, and that's they're often right about that, maybe mainly. But you must distinguish those who think that they will do well by tacking to the wind, uh, by simply adopting what seems the popular view outside, um, uh, in, in our context here, moving to the left, they will generally find that the, that is not the case. A party, when it's down and out, looks for sustenance in its ma- basic principles. And I think somebody who steps forward, as Disraeli did after the destruction of the Conservative Party uh, in, the, in the middle of mid Victorian England, who stepped forward to it, and he more or less said, um, you may not like me but you need me uh, i am someone who can take this party from the scrappy and make it the governing party of great britain and that's what he did i think a lot of conservatives
1: certainly in a canadian context have generally tried to be incremental in the past and i think in the COVID era we've seen a bit more of a rise of revolutionary conservatives of people that believe we need to upend institutions and i'm wondering where you fall on this you know I don't know if it's too crass to distill it down to the old sort of Toryism uh, versus a, a new libertarian conservatism, but there does seem to be a bit of a split in the right about whether we need incremental change or a radical change. And what do you think?
2: Well, my own view is that the way forward is generally by adopting the famous motto, "Fortiter in re, suaviter in modo. On, on the principles, you're firm, on how to get there, well, that's different you can tack to the wind, you can um, uh, agree with the middle ground on some issues, you can do those kind of things, Um, but unless you have a clear aim, and unless you have strong principles, um, you can't expect a political party to rally to you in the long run. They must be the principles of that party. But my best example of, of the kind of leadership I admire is Margaret Thatcher. Listen, it, with this example, um, when there was a challenge to the minor, to her government from the miners in 1981, some of her ministers wanted to fight it, but she did not. And the reason was she knew she couldn't win that contest at that time. So she basically gave way, made a deal that the miners wanted. She immediately called in senior ministers like Nigel Lawson and said, this problem is not going away, it will come back. And so we must now prepare to fight the miners when they challenge the government. And that's what she did. Not only did she do it, but she did it brilliantly so that they, she inflicted on the miners in 1985, the biggest defeat that uh, a, a trade union suffered for about 50 years.
1: We have uh, more interviews coming up in the days ahead, just ones that are in the bank that I don't even have time to play right now, uh, include my chat with Andy Ngo. I I always get his name wrong. I never know if you do like the N and the G or just the G or just the N. So Andy Ngo. Uh, No, no, that's like a non-government. We're we're not doing the non-governmental organization thing. So uh, never mind that, but we have a chat with him that we'll share with you I think tomorrow about uh, the far left uh, finding a very unlikely friend in Hamas. Also, a chat with Dennis Prager about Israel. We've got uh, an Australian senator on this uh, Indigenous referendum they had where the left and the wokus just got absolutely trounced by ordinary Australians in the polls and lots of other things and i I do want to uh, preface all of that by saying that uh some of the coverage over the course of the week will be about this forum itself which is new and i think there are still some questions about what it's going to look like and others will just be uh conversations i've had about random things with people i saw there that were interesting and i thought would be of note to you so uh, that's what you can get from me in the next couple of days But it's partially going to be business as usual on the show. We'll get to our friend Chris Sims in just a couple of moments. But uh, first, I always try to be responsive to the reader criticisms, which I am uh, very proud to say are not too, too common. But every now and then we get like a a really hardened reader criticism. Now, uh, I shared on Twitter last week a meme that I just came up with when I was bored once and distracting myself from writing the book that I'm working on right now, Uh, inspired by Pierre Polyev and the new symbol of resistance, the humble apple. Now this was the meme that I shared. (laughs) which is uh, Pierre Paulyev looking very svelte and smiling, uh, swinging on an apple. Now, if you wonder what that is, you are not, in fact, having an acid drip right now. Well, maybe you are. I don't judge. Uh, But this was inspired by a wave of memes from like, I don't know, 2017 or whatever uh, that came about from this catchy Miley Cyrus song. I I don't know what was wrong with me. I really, it just, I saw it and I'm like, oh, well, you know, Pierre Polyev and the Apple are just like the wrecking ball of Canadian politics right now. There there was really not a huge amount of depth. Anyway, so my colleague uh, Noah had uh, was checking the True North uh, General Inbox and had this email from a uh, listener slash viewer. Hi team, I'm just taking the time to let you know that I'm not pleased with Andrew Lawton on X. That's what uh, Twitter used to be, or is called now. Uh, tweeting out the photo of uh, Pierre Polyev sitting on the apple in a provocative pose. Really, Andrew? I have so much respect for you and True North, and I was so disappointed. Not funny at all. And I'm sure the left had a lovely time with it. Your mother and grandmother would be embarrassed for you. Uh, can you imagine if someone took the time? To- well, I'll get to that in a second. Let's let let's take this letter off. So uh, my late grandmother uh, has... Uh, passed away a few years back. Uh, To be honest, I don't think she would care at all. Uh, My mother is still alive. And uh, to be honest, my mother did text me to say she loved me yesterday. Uh, And I don't think uh, she was saying that in spite of the Pierre Polyev Apple gif uh, or meme. I think if she... I saw it, she uh, was not disappointed in me. But uh, nevertheless, I don't want to disappoint the reader. Uh, Let me say, I don't know if the left really cared because the great thing about that picture was that it was just meant to be silly and ridiculous and was not making a political point. If anything, it was sympathetic to Pierre Pauliev for turning the apple into something so hilarious, which is a tool to own the left. And the hackish leftist reporters that ask their stupid questions, well, he just calmly munches on an apple. But let's return to the email, if we may. Can you imagine if someone took the time to superimpose your face over pee and that's Pierre Polyev, and do the same to you. I guess that would be very deserving. Sorry, not sorry. Otherwise, keep up the fight and bringing truth to Canadians. Well, we will do that. Uh, It would be a terrible, terrible shame if someone put my face on Pierre Polyev's face in that graphic, wouldn't it? Well, I'll do you one better. Oh, there we go. <laughs> that, that that seemed even more offensive and to show that we should all have a sense of humor about these things. Actually, the longer I look at that picture, the more I, I look more like a pumpkin than an apple. So- Uh, But my face is actually that fat sometimes. So uh, anyway, uh, the good thing is Pierre Polyev looks better than me in that picture. So it's all relative. I think in in that case, I would trade places with him and that would be more insulting. So uh, you may not like it. That's fine. It's a stupid, stupid joke. And I do not apologize for it. But uh, if you can't laugh at yourself and the people you like, uh, you are going to be crying. And I choose not to do that in politics. Uh, Let's pivot to the big Canadian story. Story of the weekend, which is kind of two pronged because on Friday, the Liberal government staring down another cold winter uh, showed a little bit of weakness, a little miniature retreat on the carbon tax and climate file. But around the same time, we also heard a Liberal minister say this about Canadians who are displeased, especially in the West, with how the government is handling things like the carbon tax.
4: Both the Premier of Alberta and the Leader of the Opposition in that province uh, posted statements following the decision around home heating oil. Uh, Premier Smith said the federal government has decided that one part of Canada with one type of home heating is worthy of a carbon tax break, while those living elsewhere using another type of home heating do not. Is your government open to, uh, because of the affordability crisis right across this country, looking at other carve-outs for other types of home heating in the future? That's a discussion that we'll have down the road when we know that this one is working, but I can tell you Atlantic Caucus was vocal with what they've heard from their constituents
3: and uh, perhaps they need to elect more Liberals on the prairies. So that we can have that conversation as well.
1: Ooh, so if you want the government to hear your concerns, you have to vote Liberal. What a great trade-off. This government that has been in power now for eight years saying, uh, well, if we don't actually give a hoot about what you think, it's because you didn't elect enough of us. So vote for more of us, including in this part of the country that we're screwing over economically. And then maybe, just maybe, we'll hear what you say. Now, Goody Hutchings is a minister from Atlantic Canada. She's supposedly responsible for rural economic development, though evidently she's only interested in anything rural that the Liberals were elected in. So if you're from rural Ontario, uh, in southwestern Ontario, which is almost all conservative, rural Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, well, she's not there for you. The government is not there for you because you didn't vote the right way. Ideally, a government would represent the interests of all Canadians, not just uh, Canadians in liberal-held ridings. But what do I know about politics? Well, uh, there is a bit of a silver lining in this. I think that the government's messaging on this and the inconsistency has started a bit of a rebellion. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, had this to say today.
0: As Premier, I cannot accept the federal government giving an affordability break to people in one part of Canada but not here. So today, I am calling on the federal government to offer the same carbon tax exemption to Saskatchewan families by extending it to all forms of home heating, not just heating oil. It's only fair to other Saskatchewan and Canadian families. Hopefully that exemption will be provided soon. But if not, effective January the 1st, SaskEnergy will stop collecting and submitting the carbon tax on natural gas. Effectively providing Saskatchewan residents with the very same exemption that the federal government is giving heating oil in Atlantic Canada The federal government may say that's illegal and that you simply cannot choose to collect and pay your taxes in Most cases I would agree with that But it's the federal government that has created two classes of taxpayer by providing an exemption for heating oil an exemption that really only applies in one part of the country and effectively excludes Saskatchewan. As Premier, it's my job to ensure Saskatchewan residents are treated fairly and equally with our fellow Canadians in other parts of the country and that's what I am doing today.
1: Shots fired. Let's talk about this with our regular Monday correspondent, Chris Sims, who is the Alberta director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Chris, that must have been music to your ears.
4: Yeah, it was really awesome. I'm just going to adjust my shot so I'm not literally standing in front of a garbage can for you. So, all right. So
1: (laughs) There are better metaphors for Canadian politics. Actually, no, wait, there aren't.
4: (laughs) So I'm here actually at the Edmonton legislature uh, because, of course, it's the throne speech. So it's everybody's uh, first day back at school, so to speak, uh, here in Alberta. So, wow, hearing that from Premier Mo, can he do it? We don't know. We'll put it this way. Moe's heart is definitely in the right place. And Trudeau here is definitely in the wrong. And boy, oh boy, I thought we'd already seen enough of it last week, Andrew, when they said, oh, we're going to do a carve out. We're going to do a suspension. But just for furnace oil. Who uses furnace oil? Almost, you know, exclusively folks in Atlantic Canada. So they really stepped in it there. And then the Liberal Minister is like, no, wait, there's more. But if you voted liberal, we'd be nicer to you. Like, this is a dumpster fire for this government.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, because if, if anyone followed along with the carbon tax Supreme Court case and the cases before the Court of Appeal for Alberta and Ontario, et cetera, uh, the government's whole argument was that, no, 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 climate change is national. Greenhouse gas emissions are national. We, we can't let provinces come up with their own local approach to this. We can't regionalize or provincialize this. And here's the federal government doing that, saying, well, we're going to treat this differently in Atlantic Canada than we are elsewhere which undermines the government's whole approach, which is why I think Scott uh, Moe may actually have at least a moral leg to stand on, a legal one we don't know yet. Uh, Premier Danielle Smith, I, I haven't seen the clip, but I understand earlier she's talked about re-evaluating the Supreme Court case as well and in, in light of this. So it, it does sound like the government here ha- has really stepped in it. I mean, not even politically, possibly legally.
4: Yeah, exactly. So it was interesting to hear what Premier Smith had to say. So in Saskatchewan, they have a crown corporation, so that's part of the government. So the premier there is able to say, hey, wing of government, arm of government, we want you to do this. Now, again, (laughs) this is legal federally. Godspeed. (laughs) We don't know. We're leaving that up to the legal beagles. But here in Alberta, it's a a private uh, power industry. So we have competing companies that offer private uh, power to different homes, et cetera. You get to choose and pick and choose. It's not like Alberta power. So they don't have that ability. And she uh, was very careful today when she answered her question. She said, I wouldn't want to advise a private company to maybe go against the law. But she's looking at this really hard. What's great about this, Andrew, is like you just said, all of a sudden, the prime minister has to now admit that this isn't so much about the science, is it? It's about political science.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the other thing that they've undermined here. Not just that this has to be the same nationally, there has to be a one size fits all solution, but the government's other argument was that this is so important, we can't offer anyone a reprieve, even on a temporary basis. Because you at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation have been calling on the government, <laughs> the Conservatives have been calling on the government to offer a bit of a break with the cost of living crisis. Let, let's just pull back on the carbon tax. Let's let's just stop the hikes of the carbon tax. And the government has said no. And their argument has been, no, 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 climate change is so important. We We, we can't do this. This isn't about now. It's about 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And it is about right now, if you're in Atlantic Canada and voted Liberal.
4: Yes, exactly. And so we've been in the game for a long time. Uh, this is so obvious. Like, it's really obvious. The fact that they singled out just furnace oil. Okay, so around 3 or 4% of Canadian households use furnace oil or heating oil for their homes. Of that 3 or 4%, the vast majority of those homes are in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, and Labrador. A little bit in New Brunswick, but not quite as much. Yes, there are some isolated folks up in the north of Ontario and up north, maybe across the west, a little tiny bit, but not usually. Usually, it's furnace oil for the Maritimes in Atlantic Canada and natural gas for those of us here across the west and mostly in Ontario as well. What's getting me here too, Andrew, is that there's a whole lot of seats around the 905, and around your area there of Ontario, they use natural gas. Like, what are they? Chopped liver? Like, what message are they sending to all of those Liberal seats there in Ontario? But what the big win here is, is that now the Prime Minister has had to admit, one, this is unaffordable. Two, apparently this isn't the big honkin' crisis that he said it was going to be, because he's willing to suspend the usage of a carbon tax on a much more heavier particulate burning fuel for the next three years, until after the next election. That's the obvious part here. Why did he give a timeline on it? It just made it even worse.
1: Yeah, I think that is in and of itself there too. And I, I wonder if this is uh, looking at some of the polling and seeing Atlantic Canada as wavering a it. I mean, uh, Pierre Polyev had been, I think, doing a rally that night. Yes, he This was. announcement came out in Atlantic Canada. Now, I, I don't think Atlantic voters are so stupid as to be hoodwinked by a, a very temporary promise. I mean, by a government, it's it's basically the, can you stop hitting me? Uh, thing, and then a person stops hitting you and you don't just thank them, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're like, okay, well, thank you for stopping. But I'm not going to yeah. forget that you were the guy doing that in the first place. And, and that's really what's happening here. And I, I mean, look, I'm not telling anyone how to vote. But I, I do think for Atlantic Canadians, they, they're probably not going to forget that this reprieve was not really offered to them till now. And, and all of these increases, the addition of the carbon tax was entirely the doing of the feds in the first place.
4: Yes, exactly. I think most folks in that area will remember that only when all of those fat and safe seats in Atlantic Canada were suddenly tanking in the polls, all of a sudden the politicians got really into listening to people. It was just miraculous. See, this is what we try to say at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you want to make change happen, go right after your member of parliament and say so. And if they don't listen to you, that's when you say, you know what? Next time, The next election, I'm going to get a group of 10 friends together, and I'm going to door knock against you in your riding on this issue. You get their attention real fast. Why? Because it's their butts on the line this time. So that cabinet minister who said, oh, well, maybe you should elect more liberals and we'll actually listen to you on something as unaffordable and unfair as the carbon tax. Whoa. All of a sudden, her salary of 200 something thousand dollars with all expenses paid for travel and food and home heating, by the way. That's suddenly in peril and that gets their attention real fast. So this is really clear. What we're happy about is now finally, finally at the federal level, the crack is there, the crack is breaking and they're realizing that the carbon tax is unaffordable and it doesn't, it doesn't fix the environmental issues.
1: Yeah. And I I always like doing the flip on uh, political stories and say, you know, what would I think if this were reversed? What would the critics think? And I was kind of imagining this fantasy scenario of some Quebecer in, you know, 2013 makes a comment about the federal government and Stephen Harper just glibly says, well, if you want to be heard, you got to elect conservatives. Like there there would be outrage. (laughs) on that. I mean, now that I say it, I'm like, I would kind of be amused in that context, but uh, that doesn't mean it's the responsible thing to do when people are hurting. And, and that's no. really what the government is saying here. And uh, like, again, if Pierre polyev said that to uh, some suburban Toronto voter, well, if you want anything, you should have voted for me like that. That's not prime ministerial.
4: No. And in fact, uh, one of the first things, whenever there's somebody elected, okay, a premier, a prime minister, we do not it doesn't matter what party, you've been watching this game long enough, you know this. One of the first things out of their mouth is they say, while I was elected by this percentage of Albertans or Canadians, I will be the premier. I will be the prime minister for all of you. That flies in the face of what that cabinet minister just said. Like, that was a huge misstep. But what what's good about this misstep, and everybody's human, so they screwed up. Yep. What's good about this misstep is now This message of the carbon tax is unaffordable and it doesn't fix emissions issues anyway. So why are we paying for it? Why are we punishing Canadians for staying warm in winter in Canada? It is not right. Scrap it for everyone everywhere across Canada. That's becoming the dominant message now even in Ottawa, which is excellent. It's a long time coming, but it needs to happen.
1: Well, we'll see if this starts a bit of a ripple effect uh, across the country here. The Prairie Rebellion, uh, I guess we can call it. Uh, Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation joining us live from the Alberta Legislature in Edmonton. Always a pleasure, Chris. We will chat with you next Monday. You betcha. All right, and that does it for me for today. I It's like 9.45 at night, and I haven't slept in, uh, I don't know, like three days. So I'm going to try to get some rest and hit the ground running tomorrow at the Arc Forum here in London, United Kingdom, and we'll have more coverage from the ground. And I'll, I'll try to be a bit better at tweeting. I, I wasn't tweeting a, a huge amount today just because I was uh, getting my sea legs and I could not find anywhere to charge my phone. So uh, that is, though, I, I think the World Economic Forum had uh, more phone chargers and slightly better hot chocolate. But uh, uh, the people here seem to like freedom. So I guess hot chocolate freedom, you can decide which one you like better there. But uh, we will talk to you all tomorrow here on True North and The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all.
0: Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.